Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Gillian Adelstein. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Gillian. And yourself? Yeah, no, I, I am absolutely fine. Looking forward to chatting about the, the fact that we haven't had a conversation for 10 years about... Well, here's the thing, Gillian, and I found out mutually, as it were, that A, the podcast is the only one of over 300 that has completely disappeared from Podbean's library, but B, that the villains, as they say in Britain, who broke into the house I was living in some years ago and stole, you know, amongst other things, an external hard drive, have conspired to mean that what we spoke about over 10 years ago, neither of us can remember, and there's no way of retrieving it. <laughs> so it's like I was disappeared as opposed to cancelled. Yes. Well, it's interesting at the moment in the context of the controversies going on in universities that the people who are trying to stop protests about what's going on in Gaza are the same people who were complaining about so-called cancel culture five minutes ago. <laughs> That's interesting. And now they're all in favour of it. It's a very, yeah, it's a very tricky situation. Unfortunately, I think it's going to go on for a while because it seems there's no solution, very little solution. And I and um and I and I think I told you that I'd spent um I think it was nearly two two weeks or so in the in the West Bank. Um and uh, you know when you've seen both sides it it makes for an interesting uh visual really now photography is your thing but so is filmmaking let's focus on the photography for a moment if we could can you tell us about a bit more about what you just said seeing both sides um i think I think that kind of probably um, kicked off as um, somebody growing up under the apartheid regime. Um, you could either put your head in the sand and kind of be like some kind of ostrich and pretend that this wasn't happening, or you could look. And um, my mother was rather extraordinary. She always taught me to look. Mm. Um, my, it's not that my father didn't look, but he probably did too. But my mother was the one who collected maps and paintings and she was working in a lot of the townships and um, from a very young age, um, she took me into them and whether it was District 6 before it was demolished, whether it was Simonstown and the communities where she was doing research related to workers who were given, who were like the guys who worked on their wine farms where they were given alcohol as payment, um, as their wages, or when they worked on sugar cane farms, they were given sugar often. Um, large amounts of the Indian Tamil population who were shipped in to South Africa developed sugar diabetes. And my mother was doing research into that. So from a very young age, it was impossible for me to not see both sides. So and no option of head in the sand. Yes. No so there's something distinctively visual about some of what you said maps mm. drawings imagery mm. 
Toto was always there around me. And um, and so there was this aesthetic sense, and then there was the sense of beauty, and then something that was probably a little bit ugly that was happening alongside each other. You know, it, you know, and I remember quoting from the cabaret film, even the orchestra is beautiful, you know, this kind of um this kind of sitting on a beach, but it was a white beach, you know. People who lived in Guguletu or Langa or Nyanga weren't allowed. That's that was my reality. That's how it was. And um from the time I was at I was still at school where I was the first time I was almost arrested, where I was trying to hand out a booklet which said, um, know your dompas. And a dompas was, you know, the dumb, it was translated, the dumb pass, which I assume was given by the, you know, by the white apartheid regime was a way to say, this is a way that identifies where these people of a different color are moving, where they're, they're moving, are they legal, can they, can they not? And so, you know, um, uh, so there were always two sides for me. And the camera, even though I enrolled at the university and was interested in the psychology and the sociology, I was doing that and I loved languages, but it was the um it was the camera that was allowing me to that and I, I think it was the magic in the dark room, the first discovery of those images coming out of the chemicals, which absolutely sold me. And 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 that and that was it. So my my very first images were, you know, when Modadam Road, when the huts were being demolished and there felt a real sense this way I can tell a story. So um, the storytelling aspect came, came, that was a later discovery, I think. Can I just ask you, going off to one side from the political element of this, about what you called the magic of the dark room, mm. seeing these images emerge from chemicals. Mm. Has something been lost with what is almost the end of that art and artifice and science with the digital. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's hard to sound nostalgic and sort of you sort of think, oh, God, I'm sounding old fashioned. But there is something about analog that where you waited for your print to be processed and you were shaking cans and, you know, pro, you know, from the developer into the fixer into stop bath fixer and um the idea of um controlling and and um my dark room i had to demolish when my second child was born and i needed the room <laughs> so i had to i had to dismantle the dark room um so i still have my enlargers here i haven't printed for a, a, a long while but um i think there is an aspect of analog photography that just can't you can't compare, can you? I mean, the you know it has a third dimension, doesn't it? I'm interested in the way in which people have gone back to listening to long play records, uh, to the point where the demand by the public in many countries for buying vinyl records is greater than the capacity to produce the technology to manufacture them. 
because yeah. people talk about a greater warmth of sound that they got from analogic reproductions by contrast. Well, isn't that beautiful, that phrase, a warmth of sound? And so with the print, it could be the 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 magic of the of the print, you know. I mean that's not very that's not very unique or different, to be honest. I thought the but it is it is it's the depth. It's the depth. There's something there. And I think that digital has gone has done very jolly bloody well, you know, in terms of of, of pacing and meeting up and in you know improving but it doesn't it doesn't do what analog did this you know what one of my favorite film genres is the heroic journalistic story where evil corruption on the part of the church or the state or the corporation is unveiled by great journalism and my one of my favorite parts in all of this is when there is a sequence where you see the paper being printed mm-hmm. with the headline story about Watergate or whatever it might be. Even though that's not how most of us receive our news anymore, it's still something that directors tend to include in that kind of film. So there's something there about being things being lost from the analogic, for sure. But when it comes to the photography that you do, can you see a difference? You know, what I do have to say, if I think about kind of later projects that I've done, it's not that they are, that I would negate them. I I think there are certain that, you know, I always used, um, if I wasn't using a four by five camera or medium format, I, I had always chosen Canon. And um, um, I know that um, you very kindly watched the film the water rats and i was thinking about because during pan- the pandemic this was a series of images that i did about cold water swimming in and around northwest london where we weren't really meant to be swimming but the i used the cannon because it was often jolly freezing and i had <laughs> to move quickly and i have to say it did it did me justice it did the work justice it did the project justice and I don't know if it's and and, and I am pathetically nostalgic and sentimental, and I don't know if it's because it's not an up to date canon; it's one of the older ones. And I, but it's it um it somehow it it worked, and it absolutely is digital, and I think it it did afford some depth somehow, and maybe it's you know maybe my excuse for not doing analog but it also you know there is the thing that if you're doing you're working every single day then the expense does ratchet up and that you know sometimes it's not affordable for lots of people truly we'll get back to south africa in a moment but let's talk about water rats (laughs) if you could explain the film to people uh, and also how they might be able to to see it uh, in the future uh, you gave me the great gift of the opportunity of watching it before we recorded this talk. And it is extraordinary, I think, in a myriad of ways. I think it's a unique, it was a unique situation because as Joe in the film said, I don't think you need a pandemic for this to happen. You just net need something organically to allow it to happen. But what happened is that, at the start of the pandemic, we were told we weren't allowed to swim. And there were 
there were some people who felt that they the swim in in the daily routine was something absolutely essential to their well-being and um so what happened is a group of about 12 of us ranging from the ages of 21 to 68 found one another different ethnicities careers uh, interests um ages as i said nationalities um and and we became a in an incredibly kind of tight and close group of people. We still swim together, most of us, most days. Um, but the interesting thing is um, we would go very early in the morning and very late at night, and we argued that we weren't putting anybody else in danger. It's not like we were having a rave party or some such. And... Um, what happened is that just before lockdown, I'd been doing a writing class and I'd met somebody there who I knew was an award-winning drama screenwriter. And he had young children, so he was pretty, his time was quite tight, but he said he was interested in the swim and so he came. And then I said to him, do you know I've been writing about what I'm seeing with this group of people and I think there's a drama here, I think there's a story here. And then he said, why don't we, I tell you what, I've been teaching myself how to edit. Why don't we do this? Why don't we interview the water rats? And we'll interview them and then we'll cut a little teaser. And that's how the film came about because um, we included the stills and the interviews and the little bit of B cams and the, and it, and and because Greg is such a has taught himself to edit and is a brilliant editor, his name's Greg Kutzir, um the film has has had about I think twelve, most of them sell out screenings at the Lexi Cinema, a local independent cinema, who've been very supportive to us. So the we haven't found a distributor yet. So if anybody wants to see it, they have to keep an eye at the Lexi Cinema, who have shown it regularly. <laughs> Just to give people a bit of context, so this occurs in the Hampstead Heath Ponds. Yes. There are three. There's a mixed one, a women's one, and a men's one. That's right. And so we're not talking about a swimming pool. This is a strange place. I mean, I think in the men's pond, I swam in the men's and the mixed, but not during the lockdown. I wasn't in Britain at the time. There's a car at the bottom of the pond. Well, what they were going to do, that is absolutely true, because I saw that car. They drained, but that wasn't the mixed, the men's or the ladies. It was the boating pond where people take their children and they're usually swans or birds. And what happened is because of the flooding, the danger of flooding in in northwest London, more more on the Hampstead side, they decided to drain that pond and they did find a car. There was a car in the bottom of the pond. <laughs> so as usual, my story was inaccurate but correct, which <laughs> is often the case with stories that I tell. There's something of a germ of the truth in them, but often not quite in the way I Absolutely. <laughs> so... <laughs> A lot of it was it was a tourist destination for a while, I think. As you say, there is a real mixture of modes in this film. 
lasts about three quarters of an hour. It has still photography. It has interviews. It has people swimming. And some of the still photography is very much sort of actuality. And some of it is quite carefully composed. And I think that mixture is remarkable. Without giving too much away, one theme that comes out is that for some people in the group, this relates to their seeing themselves as addicts. And that is true. And that is true. And you're the first person, I should say, who's flagged that, which is quite interesting. And I've done interviews about this. And I I would say that you're the first person who's flagged that. Um, and the interesting thing is there there are. There are recovering addicts in the group, um, well, particularly one. And there are those of us who are addicted to it and need it. And it is something about it it's it's you it's we it's responding to a great need that almost you can't switch off and 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 it takes a lot to go into that cold water a massive mindset and it's not like that many of the members that i meet on a daily basis don't say as you're going to the water why <laughs> And it is, and yet, once you're out and the adrenaline kicks in and the endorphins are moving, there is um, a beautiful kind of rush. So maybe tantamount to kind of taking something that feels rather good inside. And and you can face the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's true for of exercise for a lot of people. But for some reason, I just noted that there were, there were just a few people who spoke about addiction I think, and of different kinds. And it wasn't quite clear exactly what the addictions were to. But, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. And because I guess those people spoke about this as swimming, as being akin to that. And so you've described it. Yes. So and, and, you know, Liam, who, who, who works in addiction now and helps other people and and. Um, and I think once an addict, you're always an addict, aren't you? I mean, that's the truth of it. You have to be working on it continuously through it's, it doesn't switch off. That's Never. what these folks were certainly subscribing to, what they were saying, I think, in the film. Mm. And the other thing is that, as you say, it's a whole variety of body shapes and ages. And mm. people are very forthcoming about their bodies. Um, and they are, and it's in a, and, and I, I was worried about it because the word naked is used a lot in the film, I notice. And the point is that we didn't have changing rooms and we couldn't. So there was one thing, we were meeting every morning and you took your clothes off and you had to, that was it. And so there was no hiding about anything. And in that sense, it was very free and it was very unifying and it was very... um I think it made people, the group, closer very quickly. Um, and there was, yeah, this un, un, unanimous unanimity, if that's the word, I think, in the group that was, um, that I don't think you'd get as quickly in a lot of situations. And there's a great caring, you know. And I was worried, you know, that in the film it was beginning to sound a bit twee. But it's a very human story. It's a human story. And that's what's rather beautiful about it. 
Oh, I quite agree. And because people have different tales to tell, it's interesting. This one guy, again, I don't want to talk too much about it because it might be a bit of a spoiler. But there's one person who's a scientifically trained person who's coming out of a long-term marriage who talks about the clinical trials that indicate the benefits to mental as well as physical health of this kind of exercise, particularly at a time of crisis. I think that's very compelling. But the other question I had for you is, was part of the appeal that you guys were being a bit naughty? Yes. Yes. And I think that goes again, if we pull back to what I started talking about in the beginning, is that if if you are being other in any way, it's a form of it's a form of rebelliousness, a form of anarchy, a form of I'm not going to do exactly what you tell me to do. If I have to do that, then then things are kind of over, you know. Thank God we live where we do. Thank goodness, you know, I've just seen the film Beyond Utopia, you know, it doesn't bear thinking about. Um, you have, you know, you have people like Trump who just uttered ghastly things about immigrants ruining the, you know, the soil of America. And so we're in, we're in very tricky times, I think. You know, totalitarianism really rearing its ugly head. And, and I, I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I remember right at the beginning of the lockdown when they suddenly shut everything down. And I remember passing the ponds and seeing some people playing in the ponds and thinking, how dare they and screaming, you can't be there. But it was because I was furious that I wasn't there. And as soon as, as, soon as I could join the group, I did. So back to South Africa, if if we could. Mm. And you left as quite a young woman, didn't you? Mm, I was mid-twenties, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think of that as being young. It is very young. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I arrived in, I, I remember arriving, I had enrolled at LC. It was then called LCP. It's the London College of Communications. But I remember, I mean, this is how crazy it is. It was a bedsit in Notting Hill Gate where I had to feed coins to get heat. That's that's how I began in London. There were also those places where you had to feed the television with coins if the television was part of the rental. Probably. Yes. So you, you came to Britain. Was that, if I can ask, about in part getting away from apartheid or was that about the idea of Britain as some grand alternative? I think it's a combination. I think it was exactly that. I I rather like that term, a grand alternative away from apartheid, my own kind of um, appalling ambition or not. So, you know, I think we're all being driven and, having a huge work ethic because you talked about addiction and I think I sometimes berate myself for being addicted to work or you know that it sort of satisfies something that you know you can't turn off can't turn off so and I think that if I was again looking at South Africa I realized that 
there was no way that I could be there if I wasn't doing the political work entirely. I didn't think I could opt for anything else. So the interesting thing was that I came here and I studied here. And then I was, um, I mean, it, it, it was a matter of chance. I knew that I wanted to stay. But what happened is somebody, the photo editor at the Sunday Times came to lecture. Before I'd left in the dark rooms of the newspaper that I was working in, I was printing a portfolio. And when I, when this photo editor looked at my, this portfolio, which I had, he said, what are you doing here? And that's exactly what I was feeling. I'd already won two, I'd won a world press award. I'd won two press awards in South Africa. And I was feeling pretty frustrated in the, in the, in the classroom, really. So you'd gone from the colonies where supposedly knowledge is inferior and found that actually you were a bit ahead of the curve when you arrived in the metropole, as I guess in some sense it then was. So you'd been doing press photography in South Africa. What sorts of things had you been shooting? Wow. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, a real kind of vast array. So I'd go from doing the village, you know, the local fate in Johannesburg village fate to doing nighttime cricket match to going to a fashion show, going to do a portrait of um, some political activist or member of, of the South African parliament to um very serious political um, confrontations where it would be the police um, on one side with rubber bullets or guns or, you know, and another side with um, students or people in townships with, you know, with stones, but rage, rage after somebody had been killed and, 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 and at the side of uh, gravesides. So there was a, there was a vast array um and in that sense, it was sort of a bit surreal and and peculiar, you know, for one moment, you know, you'd be having a front page story of somebody, you know, ha ha holding a, a, a dog. I think actually in my new book, there are some of these, we put some of these cuttings as a, as, as a matter of kind of comedy as well as kind of <laughs> observation. To the political, the political um, pieces that were the underbelly of what was actually going on. Which ones won the awards? So that's very interesting. Man bites dog, or cricket at night, or serious political confrontation. So neither really. The interesting thing is the one is of a this man called Rodney Axe had been terrorizing the community. He'd been raping people, and they've. I mean, I remember one of my last jobs for the Rand Daily Mail was they. I used to be, do different shifts, and this one shift was from four to midnight. They said, "Oh, I think they've seen Rod Rodney Axe," and I remember driving to this deserted street in the middle of the night and terrified, suddenly kind of screeching a reverse when nobody was there. But they did find Rodney Axe and they said, you've got to go quickly because he's coming 
to the courtroom. And what happened is it is a photograph of Rodney Axe running towards me. There is there is a gate in between. It's very clear he has an erection. He has a brick in his hand. There's a guard to the left of him just sitting and watching this unfold. And there are two prison guards running to try and catch him. And that 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 was the first that was the first one. And I remember I mean, a few times where this has been, where you're hyperventilating and you know you have to get the photograph and you're doing it while you you can hardly draw breath, but you're doing it and you're walking backwards because you're trying to get away. But you know you have to take the photograph. So there was that. And the other one was I was sent to interview the man who organized something called the Rand Agricultural Show. And we were interviewing this man. And the journalist I was working with, I think, was hungover. And the two of us were in the room interviewing him. Very unusual. No stereotypes at play. No stereotypes here. And suddenly somebody ran in screaming, fire, 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 photographer, please come. And the entire rancho fire was burning down. And there there were photographers being sent from every newspaper around the Johannesburg area, including people in helicopters. They even hired helicopters so they could photograph from the top. But the, the photograph that drew everybody's attention was that, and I remember it was the only time I ever wore high heeled boots on a job. So I kept falling into the grass. But I remember... I have to think differently, I said to myself. And I went to behind, um, behind. I can get you the picture. if I can show it to you while I am talking because it's right here. But the extraordinary thing was there was, there was a group of family and I noticed it looked like they were picnicking um, because they were sitting on chairs watching this fire. And that was pretty damn unusual and then I very quietly started photographing it was the back of the of the back of their bodies in the in these chairs and as I did this suddenly this young girl turned around and smiled like like um I don't know if you can see it it's very yeah. I was very very upset because the yeah, um yeah I was very, very upset because in this reproduction of the book, it's not as saturated as it should be. But that was the image. So this little girl smiling and the fire and them looking like they were having a picnic. Front page of the Daily Mail. Mm. <laughs> yes, the Rand Daily Mail. The Rand Daily Mail, yes, quite. Wow. Well, jetting back to London, if we could, this dude from the Sunday Times speaks to you. And just to give people context, the Sunday Times was always more liberal than the Times, and it was very famous for its investigative reporting, which I think exposed thalidomide back in the early 60s, and did lots of other important work for decades. Well, they had the editor Harold Evans, remember, yeah. And he was very interested in photojournalism and photo documentary and story t- reportage and did a phenomenal book. I still remember the title. And we're talking about going back to the 
seventies, eighties, I think it was published, pictures on a page. He was he was the man. He was, and he tried to protect his workers from the dirty digger when Rupert Murdoch took over. And that seems to work for a while, and then the dirty digger got rid of him, I think. I don't think that he was I don't think that he was in power yet. Um, at all. Oh, okay. I mean, what I'm sort of saying is that he'd left the Sunday Times at that stage. Oh, okay. It was, right. it was Andrew Neil, and um, I was there when five thousand five hundred print workers left, were were fired, to bring in the digital era. Whopping, whopping, and I think that I was the only photographer who went to look at the site. I was living in a house. Uh, there were 12 of us living in this house and a lot of them were very politically orientated. They were going on marches pick at the pickets at Wapping and there were huge posters being pin- painted in my front living room. And I had not been, I'd been, I'd, I had crossed a picket line once because my photo editor called Michael Cranman said, you've got to come and sign this contract. And I felt entirely uncomfortable. I ran away to to go and work in the townships in South Africa because it was a state of emergency had just been put into place. And um, I I got into terrible trouble in the township. We were taken out under gunpoint with caspers and all sorts of horrible things. And I had to come back. But I had to leave because it it was impossible. Firstly, it was like I felt the crossing the picket lines didn't feel right. And in in a sense, of course, there was this inevitability about it. But it didn't, it it just, I couldn't do it. Well, it was, in the case of Wapping, it was done in a sneaky way. I think that's another. Well, I, I remember being at the meetings for the National Union of Journalists and the, um, I know that I remember the vote and I remember voting against going in. And it was so close. It was so close. Um, But they voted to go in, you know, they voted to go in. So by this stage, you've become a fully fledged photojournalist in Britain. Yes. And I'm now freelance. I'm forced to become a freelancer because I now don't have this job, which was my, it was a job I dreamed about. I I dreamt about being, a, I mean, it was like, my God, my dream has come into action, you know, into, into being. And I had to leave it. And so I had to go freelance. And, but the luck was that lots of the, the journalists who had left the Sunday Times did other things. They started working with the Robert Maxwell paper called the London Daily News. They were in other positions of power and they knew that I was not too bad a photographer. And they and so, for example, the London Daily News, there was an art section. And um, I'd already started doing portraits at the Sunday Times. So I was doing less documentary and more portrait work, which was interesting um, because I thought I, I, I remember thinking I was stepping on the stone, the toes of um, photographers like 
Sally Soames or Jane Bowen, you know, because that that's they were the two the two powerful Sally Soames of the Sunday Times and Jane Bowen of the Observer who were doing a mainly portrait work. But I was winning I was winning awards for the portrait work, and so when the London Daily News started, I mean. I'd get a call and they'd say, would you go and photograph James Baldwin? Would you go and photograph Gerard Depardieu? Will you photograph, go and photograph um, Richard Attenborough? It just went on like this for some time. And so I, and I'd moved also from 35 mil to medium format and then later to four by five. And, and I was working with lighting, um, which I'd learnt as an assistant in, in in studios, so so it was a great luck. So this is the mid eighties we're talking about. This is late eighties, late eighties. So um, whopping happened in eighty six, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, oh, was it that late? Okay, for some reason I yes, thought it was eighty six. Yeah, and so I was virtually freelance in London yeah. Daily News. I mean, the Robert Maxwell thing came to an end, as we all know, but it went on from 87, 88, 89. Then the early 90s, I I mean, then really what you could talk about is the fact that I then realized, you know, the importance of creating one's own projects. And that's when I um, I had a very, um, I had something happen to me in my personal life and I began to make friends with people that I'd been commissioned to photograph. And I thought about this idea of the affinity series, creative collaborators, collaborators, people you met because of work, you wouldn't have otherwise, and you have this sustained, wonderful working relationships. And and even during lockdown, I just before lockdown, I was working on it again, revisiting it, because I worked on it in the from nineteen ninety to ninety four, and the Telegraph magazine retained me, which was a very unusual thing. They had they had two retained photographers. They had Snowden and they had me, and I was on the back page, and Snowden had you know whatever profiles were happening in the front. But the extraordinary thing was, as we know, um, budgets have been now constrained, but at that time. I had a full-time researcher, you know, who would who was just, you know, and if I said, you know what, I think I'd like to take this project to New York, they would go, okay, who 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 do you want? Or they'd have editorial meetings and they'd go, I tell you what, I think we should have Jeff Coons. Oh, what about Willem Dafoe? Okay, let's do Alan Ginsberg. And that's how this extraordinary body of work was was manifested really and just again for people who may be a bit younger than me or not from britain from the early 60s the sunday papers which always had a peculiar independence from their daily brethren the observer which has merged with the guardian but was pretty much independent the Sunday Times, the Sunday Telegraph, would produce these extraordinary, glossy, high-contrast magazines. <laughs> Pardon me. And you would get the top novelists of the day, poets, photographers, fashion designers, everything featured. 
And it was one of the highlights of a Sunday morning in bed to remove these glossy inserts from the rest of the, the paper. And uh, the sad thing is that they have, uh, they're not quite what they were, let's put it that way, in production terms at least. A hundred percent. I mean, there was the, there was the, section they called the the uh, day in the life of the, I think there was and there was relative values which was very famously the Sunday Times so it was um it uh, I mean because of that um I'm trying to of course my mind's gone completely blank now but the um I did I know I in fact um Snowden was one of the people I had to photograph for relative values and he was very upset he was furious because he wanted to do do a self-portrait of him and his son, Viscount Lindy, and um, the Sunday Times magazine editor, Aidan Sullivan, said, no, I want Gillian to do it. And he tried to, this is a wonderful story, actually, because he tried to sabotage the shoot. He told me that his power was off so that I couldn't put the lighting on, and it was winter, so there was no lights after three. (laughs) And then his, his, I remember the secretary then came in and said, Lord Snowden, can I put the lights on again? So she, she <laughs> blew his cover. <laughs> this is, a, I don't know whether he he features as a character in The Crown because I have refused to watch it, but he probably does. I don't know. I think he does. But this is Anthony Armstrong Jones originally, who was a very famous photographer and who was married to Princess Margaret, Yeah. Uh, yeah. And was a slightly notorious scoundrel. I'll say that you don't have to say it, and uh, for for a whole variety of reasons. But was what was called a celebrity photographer, which meant that he was the celebrity. <laughs> but you know, thinking about the Sunday Times now, I mean, Aidan Sullivan was an extraordinary editor and would send a lot of. He was ahead of his time. I mean, women like me, Harriet Logan. When we were pregnant, or when we just had, like, I, I was sent to some on some amazing jobs after, just after I'd given birth, which was really empowering, and it kind of got your mojo back. And I remember he sent me to do the, the you know, the uh, the Irish was called the, they called it the sadistic nun story or whatever it was. The 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 woman once the stories outed about what was going on in the convents in Ireland. Um, I think Harriet was sent to Afghanistan when she was you know pregnant, which was kind of un, unheard of for photo editors to do. But the stories um, that that I did were. Um, I, I think what I've got to do after this conversation is to sit down and look at at the backlog of magazines, and um, but they were, they were, you know, there were stories um, about very confronting issues in the world. And speaking of confronting issues, en passant, gender has become part of our conversation. You talked about being sent to capture on film the the rapist and then realizing there was nobody else there. You talked about him advancing aggressively towards you with an erection. And now you've described being given assignments when pregnant or having just given birth. And you've also mentioned that a number of famous photographers in British news journalism are women. So this leads, this rather long introduction leads to the question, 
How much of both opportunities and constraints in your career have come, do you think, because of being a woman? It's a difficult question, um, but I think because right from the start, you know, my byline was often Julian, or I remember the photo editor in Johannesburg saying, what's the matter, lovey, have you got your period? You know. Nice. Um, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was faced with that kind of sexism right from the start. Um it was never, ever, ever going to stop me. And it never was anything that I thought, you know, th that I got upset about. I just did it. It's what I had to do. And it's so interesting because the conversation has got become so heated now. I don't think, I mean, I do remember now that you're talking about it. Where the where you know, I'd say, oh, why can't I go to Lesotho to photograph this bomb blast? Where the, uh, the it, this was an ANC, um, this is pre um, the fall of apartheid, and ANC had bombed. I can't remember what it was, something in Lesotho, and they, and they went, no, no, you can't, you understand because you're a woman. So it was those, you know women don't do those kind of things. But I was always kicking against it. I was always in my mind, it was like, I can, I can show that this is a ludicrous attitude and um, not, not anything is going to stop me. The truth is, um, I've not wanted to go into war zones. I've often been in post-conflict situations and they're tough enough anyway. You know, you see the aftermath and, um, and, you know, you know, watching the refugees come in, I don't know if I've completely deviated from what you were saying, but I think um, we're in a, we're in such a strange, strange time now where, you know, cis, cis, cisnet and cisgender and, you know, LGBT and all these kind of la labels, um, for me, it was always I was just getting on and doing it. Doing the job. When it came to portraiture, for example, or conflict scenes, did you ever think that people were either shutting down to you because you were a woman or opening up because you were a woman? Was there any additional? Yeah, I think there were both situations. Oh, so sometimes That's less trust, sometimes more trust. I mean, I, I do remember situations. I was thinking about it last night because there was an, 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 a not... Um, for not positive piece about P. Diddy, um, who I remember photographing. And I remember because it was a time where everybody was tethering to it, where we still do tether to laptops. And he was looking at the images clearly and he had masses of bodyguards and and it was for a cover. And he got furious and said um, he, that he was leaving because he didn't like what he was seeing. You know, this this you know, there, there'd be no retouch. I couldn't, do, you know, whatever he was seeing on the laptop, on the screen, he was not, he was not relishing. And he said he was going to leave. And I had to talk him back. Now, had I been a man? Had I been a woman? I don't know. I remember, I remember a confrontation with Jeffrey Archer. It was for time, not for, for time out, I think, or where it was a, they wanted me to photograph him and, I remember his secretary calling me and apologizing. 
that he'd been so rude. Would it have been different had he been a man? You see, any it's all about, isn't it, timing, people's moods, what you're putting across, what they're putting across. It's a performance. I've always said that that's what it is. And as much as you giving, you will get. Be me a, be a man, be a woman. Who knows? Who knows? It's so much of the atmosphere and the mood and and what what one wants to get out of it on both sides. Now, Gillian, I know you want to join your water rats for a swim shortly. I've got a couple more questions. Go for it. After I've posed them, I'd like to give you the option of adding something. If there's any topic we haven't touched on that you'd like to address, you could do that then. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so my... First of the two questions is about Mandela, mm-hmm. because your portraiture extended to Nelson Mandela, amongst many others. And I wondered if you could speak a bit about that for you as a South African who had left that country for ethical reasons, as well as personal development ones, I guess. What was it like to photograph him? And how do you look back on the encounter? But so I've gone quiet because <clears throat> it's it's one of the most powerful experiences in the portrait photography that I probably ever had. Um, as a little girl, my grandparents' apartment flat was opposite. You could see Robben Island across the water. And so I, I, I would always look across the water, know that there was, there were a lot of people who were held there for their fight against apartheid. And I never, ever, to be honest, I never dreamt that I would meet him. And um, when I suggested um, I had been back in South Africa for a visit, and I'd seen the scenes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission unfolding on the television screens. And I came back to London. I was then a member of Network Photographic, the agency. And I said to the um, that to, to the agency, I wanted to do this. I wanted to cover it. And I applied. I sent a letter to Desmond Tutu asking if I could be the official photographer. He sent a message saying, I'll give you my blessing, but I'm afraid we have somebody you can't. And I put I put the idea to the Sunday Times and they said they at that time they didn't have the budget. And then the New York Times magazine said, yes, we'll send you. But we want to do an interview with Mandela. And so they sent their top journalist and in we went. And I was told, you've got 10 minutes. You will not use any flashlighting. The, the, the president's eyes have been damaged because of the limestone quarries on Robben Island because when they used to be smashing the rock in the day and they had no sunglasses and it was very bright and brutal and um, and so you can't use flash but you've got 10 minutes and uh, I, 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 we lined up to shake his hand with there were all sorts of people 
in the Tone House, which was the presidential house at the time. And um, I think his name was, um, I'm trying to remember, the, the journalist of the New York Times magazine interviewed him and I did these photographs as we went along. And I probably told the story quite a lot, but I remember putting, because I was using a light meter because it was, I was using analog, medium format, four by five. I had a four by five camera, but I realized then because of the time constraint, it would be a bit crazy to be trying to shoot off sheets of film. So as I used a, a Hasselblad and, and my 35 mil right when he was being interviewed, but I remember putting the light meter at his chest and he went to grab it and I said, President Mandela, you don't need to um, hold that. It's just to take a light meter reading. And he said, what do I know? I'm just a country bumpkin, which was, <laughs> which was the sweetest thing. And um, put you at ease. And put me at ease. And yeah. then we went outside. I requested we go outside where the light was even. And, and, um, and at that time, you know, all the photographs of him had been him with a big smile on his face and parading to the crowds and doing the happy thing. But I also knew the backstory was that his marriage was Winnie Mandela was falling apart. And I had 12 frames and one of them, he looked very sad. There was a moment of just pensive, quiet and when the images went into the Sun, the New York Times, I think they thought that I hadn't got it captured. And then, to be fair, Kathy Ryan, who was the photo editor of the New York Times magazine, saw that image, and I suggest, you know, I suggested she use it, and she went for it, and that was on the front page of the Sun, of the New York Times magazine. So it was pretty, it was pretty, it was a pretty powerful experience. And there's only, and, and and you could put this in the podcast or not, but there's only one other person who understood when you talk about having met Mandela, it was Bob Geldof. I met him one evening and he talked about, it was because the smile came upon my face that I, I couldn't, I couldn't erase. I couldn't, it's like, it's never happened, not before, not since. And it was like you were meeting. What would it be to meet a saint, you know, or somebody who has, there was some other, and it's very hard to explain. And I, and and, that, and when, when I met Bob Geldof, I remember him having the same, having the same experience of this difficulty of describing the meeting with this extraordinary man. I think you've given us a wonderful description. So here's my last question before I throw to you and then permit you to dive into the frigid waters of the Hampstead Ponds. I cannot imagine doing it, my God. In a sense, you were part of, you helped to form, but you also benefited from the golden age of photojournalism. I think it's fair to say. Now many people fear that it's done, that it's gone. For all sorts of reasons, the political economy of newspaper ownership, the proliferation of digital cameras that are cheap and a part of people's everyday telephony and so on. What's your view of that past and the present and the future? So I think it's quite interesting. It was my immediate thought was what's happened is the power of publishers. Publishers have suddenly become 
the the former you know like the former picture editors the former creatives the former former art directors that's my it was my immediate thought and i and there is a power and it's made it very tricky because you have to find a lot of money to publish books now and you know when i did truth and lies Grant had published it. I was given £2,500 at the beginning at the start of it and 2500 when the book was published. That does not happen, I imagine, possibly, at great um, publishers like maybe Tushin or Jonathan Cape, where there are high, high-powered um, people like, I suppose, maybe Don McCullen, Elliot Owen, those those sort of situations. But now you have to raise the funds. You have to do lots of people, Kickstarter, um, programs, platforms that will raise the money that will showcase the work because you don't have the magazines as much that readily showcase the work. And you're nodding your head and I hope you're agreeing with me, but I have to say that um it's it's a, it's a very transformed situation it's very very different and i've noticed in the last while my publishers are ghost and i've noticed some of the beautiful books they've done with people like a young new photographer valentine goppel who did you know work related to the pandemic alice tomlinson who's gone to italy and done extraordinary local customs um they've just done a book with don mccullen you know it's become this absolute need to have the work in its entirety which is when one starts projects and 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 so it's it's this tussle to earn a living and to do the work that's important the that the the narratives to have them and get them out there. And that's that's I think what drives the 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 documentarian, the storyteller, the visual artist. Beautiful. So finally, Gillian, anything you'd like to add to our conversation? Keep taking photographs, keep witnessing, keep telling the stories. Thank you. That's a wonderful conclusion. And let's hope that this recording is not lost to posterity. <laughs> and thank you for having me. Not at all. Whether it is or it isn't, please come back to the pod sometime in the future. I will. Thank you so much, Toby. <laughs>